Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype, right to the heart of the big issues of the day. Today, we have the last in an occasional series of special broadcasts featuring highlights from the recent 2021 UBS European Conference. Regular listeners to this programme might recall, both from previous episodes and indeed from past iterations of the event itself, that the European Conference is a forum for leading political, economic and monetary policy experts to debate the pivotal questions shaping the investment landscape. Over the past decade, the conference has become one of the most important European industry meetings for institutional investors, corporates and policymakers alike. This week on the programme, we continue our coverage with some reflections from Susanna Push, UBS Head of European Luxury Research, who moderated a closed session that discussed whether luxury has reached a tipping point in China and the United States. We're going to unpack some of the themes from that panel today, including an exploration of the unique makeup of many of the key brands in this sector and their performance, the rise of the second-hand market, the impact of Chinese common prosperity, and the role of digital as both disruptive force and bringer of potential opportunity. Susanna is based in London, and she and her team recommend to institutional investors which companies in the luxury goods universe they should consider investing in or perhaps avoiding. They follow the largest European groups like LVMH, Richemont, Prada, Todd's, Caring and so on. Susanna Push, welcome. Let's establish a bit of a backdrop to the luxury sector, first of all. As I mentioned, our sort of frame of reference was set actually by a panel I know you moderated at the European Conference fairly recently, which took place, well, sort of partly in London, partly remotely, like so much. And it was looking at this idea about a tipping point in the sort of luxury market, in the US and China in particular. But let's maybe look at Europe, first of all. We're both sat in that geography, and I know that's where you focus, obviously, a great deal of your attention, as you've described. Give us a bit of the backdrop to the European picture. Maybe if we look at brands specifically, is it most useful, Susanna, to look, first of all, at brands that typically or currently are outperforming or underperforming? I would say the brands that are outperforming in Europe are pretty much the same brands as outperform globally. We've seen in the last couple of years a very high degree of polarization, i.e. brands which are stronger are keep on doing better and better. They obviously have bigger resources to reinvest, are great at innovation and at creating most desirable products. And some of the weaker brands, they keep on lagging uh, because of that they're under some financial pressure. So I would say the brands that that outperform in Europe, they're not specific to Europe, but they tend to include the the biggest brands uh, such as Louis Vuitton, Dior, especially these have been very, very strong, Hermes, and specifically in jewellery, Cartier. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you a bit about the sort of particular or unique nature maybe of, of some of these these brands or these houses, these big these big groups, because they are, many of them, there's a sort of a, a family component, which does give the this sector in this geography a particular sort of interesting quality, doesn't it? Yes, it does. So this is one of the very unique characteristics of the luxury goods sector, as you pointed out. In fact, the only European luxury company which is uh, not family-owned or, or, or controlled to some extent is Burberry, which is a British luxury brand, and that's the only company within our coverage that uh, has 100% free float, which means there's no specific anchor shareholder. So this theme of the European luxury brands being majority family-owned it is something that we actually like about the sector. I know that sometimes it makes things perhaps a little bit more difficult to investors because there's always this incremental angle of, of you having to understand the family and, and their objectives. 
and maybe sometimes some family politics. But ultimately, we believe this is a positive thing about the sector because families tend to be long-term oriented. They want to ensure they, they can build, build value in the long term. They're happy to invest. Sometimes maybe it is something that normally the stock market wouldn't like because it can bring some short-term pressure on profits. But because these families are run by generations of families, they do think about their success in the long term. And I think ultimately this is something that any shareholder would want. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you a couple of points, I guess from more almost the sort of consumer, the consumer viewpoint, Susanna. One is about the growing importance, I guess, of you know, consumer awareness broadly, you know, sustainability themes, ethical themes in terms of corporate governance and so on. But also something that's maybe quite profoundly shifting the very nature of the market itself. And that's the secondhand market, which obviously is booming for reasons that have been well documented. Can you talk to us a little bit about some of these key kind of consumer themes in this space? So certainly the secondhand market is, is one of the big themes. We, we've been discussing it for, for a while already because the market is not completely new. The market has definitely been going been going for a big transformation in the last couple of years with the emergence of large e-commerce platforms, which allow people to sell and buy secondhand luxury goods online. And why this is something really important, I think mainly because quite often intuitively people would assume this is something negative because people tend to think this clearly must compete with the business of the luxury brands. But we actually don't think this is the case. And so far, it seems like we've had evidence for that, is the fact that when the consumer sees that these products, they keep value, you can always resell them at a decent amount, which is quite often very close to the actual purchase price, and in some cases, even at a premium. It definitely reinforces the the value these uh, goods have. It reinforces their pricing power. It also allows people to perhaps enter the luxury goods market for the first time, rather than looking for a bargain for for a discount, you know, you can buy a product which may be slightly used, but people probably won't be able to tell. And this is probably a good way to enter the industry. And next time, maybe you're going to buy a new product. And also importantly, it keeps the consumers in the cycle. These are very high quality, often high ticket items. Naturally, if let's say there is something we don't want to wear anymore, we don't like it anymore, it's out of fashion or for whatever reason, these are not the products people would on average throw away or give away. So being able to actually have a liquid market where you can resell these products allows people to have some money back for this and reinvest it in new products. So in a way, it keeps the consumer in the cycle. If you don't wear something, you can resell it. You can put this money into a new product. But the people who ultimately buy this product are not always people who would have necessarily bought a new product because maybe they're just entering the market for the first time. So that dynamic definitely has changed the market globally, not just in Europe. And we tend to see it as a positive development for the market because it does reinforce the value of these goods and it should, in theory, make the consumer more keen to buy these products because they can see that they're not going to lose money. Worst case, if something happens, they can resell the product and they will get in some cases, even almost all of their money back. Yeah, I find it really interesting that the ways in which this luxury sector can be a bit of an outlier, that's one. And I just wonder, I mean, this this wasn't something that we were going to touch on, but is it likewise slightly 
less susceptible to, say, digital disruption as a market, Susanna, I wonder, precisely for those reasons. It doesn't necessarily behave as a kind of, and I use the term loosely, sort of, you know, usual consumer market. It has these very different dynamics. Does it actually make it slightly inured to some of the disruptive tendencies of, of the growth of digital as well? Definitely. And this is one of the reasons why we really like this sector, the sector structure at UBS. And, and we've been flagging it for a while and also arguing to investors that we believe because of that, the sector deserves a premium uh, versus its historical valuation to the market. And that's because we've seen many changes, uh, many disruptions globally, and especially in the consumer space, digital lowering and, and e-commerce as a whole, I think, has lowered barriers to entry in many industries and made it way easier for the consumer to compare their prices. The consumer is way more informed. So that has been a very, very big force, disrupting especially space like just general retail. And we often say that something that is, I would say, almost beautiful about luxury is that this is an emotional purchase. We don't necessarily need these, product, these products. We buy them because they make us feel a certain way. And a very expensive, high-end luxury handbag, let's say, and maybe a handbag from a high street brand, we can both agree that their function is the same. You can carry your wallet or some of your valuables in it. But you go for a, for a luxury bag because obviously there's a superior craftsmanship design. There's, there's lots of reasons which would justify the price. But it is also a psychological, it's a purchase driven by psychology. It makes us feel certain way. You don't buy it out of rationality or for, for functionality. And that's why this is a sector which, in fact, we believe has benefited a lot from digital because now the consumer can be more informed, can check out the prices on the website before they go to the shop and they wouldn't feel intimidated asking about the price. They would know what are the prices, what exactly product they're after. In fact, companies say that roughly 70 to 80 percent of purchases which happen in store, they start online, i.e. people actually research the product online. And even if they have the perhaps possibility to buy it online, they choose to go to the store because the store offers a superior experience. And then at the same time, because it's a sector which, which should be focused on a limited distribution, you don't want to have a luxury brand which has a store in, on every corner and in every smaller town. But of course, in smaller towns, people also have the necessary means to buy such products. Uh, so online also enabled the companies to tap to the consumers in places where they wouldn't necessarily uh, be able to tap into, and especially in big countries like the US and China, where the countries are huge and you have pockets of money in, in very, very different uh, parts of the country. So all in all, we think uh, it's an interesting example of a very sound structurally sector, which actually tends to benefit from digital rather than uh, being disrupted like many other industries which are disrupted by digital, by e-commerce as a whole. Well, Susanna, you mentioned China there in passing, and we're also reflecting on some kind of quite positive implications in the longer term. And that leads me very elegantly to ask you my next question, which is about uh, the Chinese market. And in particular... I know that there are these longer term positive implications for this sector again uh, because of common prosperity. Now, again, I'm sure some of our listeners might be familiar with that, but maybe just tell us a little bit about kind of what that means and why it encourages positive reflections on, on what the future might hold. So maybe to give a bit of a background of common prosperity, this is a theme which, which started coming back this summer. The Chinese government started emphasizing the fact that they have an objective to achieve a common prosperity, 
to make sure that the middle class is bigger and not to go to too, into too much detail, but the idea is of some wealth redistribution to make sure that um, the wealthiest people in the country redistribute some of their wealth and not just the people, but also corporations and that the middle class can grow in the country. When that started, when that theme started over the summer, that was around August, I think initial investors really panicked. Uh, we saw luxury goods companies and their share prices literally collapsing uh, within the scope of a few days. The sector derated by 30% within the scope of a few weeks. And I think that's because people's memory went back to the anti-graft campaign when the luxury goods sector around 2013-14 was heavily impacted by, by the government uh, cracking down on gift giving in China. And that's why investors panicked. But I think since then, people have, have realized that this is actually not a negative for the sector. And this is something that we have been trying to highlight immediately when, when the discussion about it starts. First of all, common prosperity is not a new concept per se. It's a concept which has been already uh, discussed in China, I believe, since uh, late 80s. The idea of having reached certain targets, the country will, will try to pursue common prosperity, make, making sure that everyone in the country has a prosperity in their life. So the reality is that if you think of the luxury goods sector, it is a sector which is a player middle class. Of course, you have high net worth individuals buying these products, and maybe that's 10 to 20% of the business maximum for the sector. But at the end of the day, it's the middle class. It's someone who buys a handbag for a gift for someone. Um, so simply looking at it, the bigger the middle class in China, the better it is for the luxury goods companies. Obviously, what everyone has been worried about were maybe short-term tax implications. Suddenly, taxes go up a lot. Maybe the consumer confidence would be hit. People would have less disposable income. But our house view at UBS, and we've done a lot of work with our economists about it, is that any tax increases will be very gradual and, and they, will take, they will take effect over a longer time period. So this is not something we see as a risk. We think it will be very gradual and moderate, uh, so we're not worried about it. But net-net, this is something that should be positive for the sector in the long term, because the objective of common prosperity is to make sure that people in China are wealthier, that the pie is effectively getting bigger. Well, yeah, and actually to pick up on something that we touched upon briefly in terms of the potential of digital in this space, how important, Susanna, is utilising the full range of digital capabilities at the disposal of, of luxury brands to connect with those consumers? As you mentioned, they can be quite disparate geographically. So presumably, again, the sort of digital front in this is, is fundamental in terms of delivering, you know, the local communications that will drive growth in these key markets. I think this is an interesting topic globally, but especially in China, because the, the digital landscape in China is very different. And this is something that is often underestimated by us in, in Europe or in the US. The platforms, applications, how people use them, they're very different. And that's why it's quite important for the brands to, to really understand that landscape, to have the effective communication, especially in today's world where there's always a risk that from one day to another, a physical event could get cancelled because of the pandemic. So this is definitely something that the most successful brands in the sector are able to utilize properly, being on the right platforms, collaborating with the right influencers, doing it through the right channels with respect for, for the culture and, and traditions. So 
that is a slightly complex issue, so I won't go too much into it, but I think especially recognize that the absolute uniqueness of the Chinese digital space, it is something that it's, it would be impossible for a brand to succeed without doing that properly. Well, let's just train a lens very briefly on the US, which is another one of the key, well, probably the other one of the two key markets, certainly in terms of growth and the rate of, of growth. Just give us a bit of a snapshot, Susanna, about what's happening there in this space. We're, we're in the midst what, of a, I don't know how you describe it, a sort, of, sort of a structural shift, really, in terms of luxury sector stateside? Yes, definitely. It's a really fascinating topic because I think quite often there is still this misconception in the luxury goods market where people often say, and, and often press, I think, incorrectly writes that, saying, oh, luxury goods is just a China-driven market. It's completely wrong. A China-driven market is a market where no other nationality is almost growing and it's purely driven by the Chinese consumer. And I think that misconception is still there. And that also partially explains why the sector reacted so negatively to common prosperity fears over the summer. But the reality is that if one looks at it closely, and especially the most successful players in the market, like LVMH, for example, you can clearly see that in the last couple of years, in fact, one of the fastest growing nationalities, and in the last year or so, the fastest growing nationality has been the American consumer. Now, I think there's often questions from investors saying, well, could it be simply driven by the strong stock market performance? Because we found that the US consumer tends to be most impacted by the stock market performance, i.e. when the stock market performs well, people feel very happy, they're keen to spend more. But we've actually recently written a long report uh, showing to investors that, yes, there could be some cyclical aspects helping the sector, such as the stock market performance and just general asset prices, the boom in cryptocurrencies, where clearly a lot of people made decent amounts of money. But what I think people shouldn't underestimate is that strength of the U.S. consumer is not something just very recent. Again, if we look closely at the companies which are most successful in the sector, you can see that the U.S. consumer has been very robust over a couple of years already. And what we are trying to explain in our report is that there's actually several structural reasons behind it. Uh, Using UBS Evidence Lab survey, we showed that, in fact, people have been allocating a bigger portion of their budget to luxury over an extended time period. And that's been especially the case for younger consumers. So clearly people are spending differently. They're perhaps more keen to spend more on luxury because they're, they're also looking to buy fewer things, but of better quality. At the same time, the distribution in the sector has improved massively. Previously, there was a lot of discounting happening in the sector, driven mainly by the department stores. Brands didn't have the right stores in the right places. And this is something that the industry has definitely focused their attention on in the last couple of years. And that has helped to grow. And also, as a result, the consumer has become less price sensitive. It is something that, again, came up in our UBS Evidence Lab surveys that actually value from value. So so the actual price of the product started being less and less relevant to the consumer. And then finally, what we earlier discussed, the rise of the secondhand luxury goods market, in fact, American secondhand luxury market is one of the biggest and most developed in the world. Most of the big platforms selling secondhand uh, luxury goods online are actually American ones. So this is certainly also that something that has helped 
the industry locally in the US uh, because it reinforced the value, the value that these products hold. Susanna Push. And that brings us to the end of this edition of the Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda in the fast-moving world of finance every week here on Monocle 24. You can listen again and find out more at monocle.com or catch up, as ever, via your preferred podcast platform. The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24.